Yeah, did you hear about those two bonsai, bonsai trees that got stolen in Seattle and then returned? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, was that, I think we even talked that. No, yeah, a bonsai tree. There was a, yeah, there's a bonsai tree museum in Seattle, Washington. These two guys stole uh, these like 100 year old bonsai trees, and then a week later they returned them. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the little trees. How much do you think that that was worth? And were they like charged by the SEC, or was it like a Oh, I mean, it would have been a. It, these are these were like thou, these trees cost thousands of dollars, oh, like no easily. Oh, no shit. They're hundred. They're hundred year old little Japanese trees. Come on. I mean, what costs more, like a tiger cub or a little bonsai tree? And then... oh, a bonsai, a bonsai tree. <laughs> what? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, dude. You can get. You can make another tiger cub. You can't make another hundred year old yitty tree. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but not a tiger cub what? that is affectionate like Lulu. Nah, you can make another. <laughs> I haven't watched that. That that, that uh, I refuse to watch Tiger King. Uh, just off of principle no, a, at this point. I'm sure it's an exploitative show, man. Also, the owner's a fucked up dude. He do, he doesn't pay his workers. He owns a restaurant. Uh, in yeah, I heard about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't. Yeah, he, he he's bad. He's bad news bears. He didn't pay. He didn't pay his B bar employees when he furloughed them. Uh, even, and then he made like millions of dollars off Tiger King. Bad man. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. What are you telling me? A guy who owns a restaurant is a dick. That's that's crazy. Man. <laughs> there's there, there's only a couple types of restaurateurs, and and one of one of them is like an old punk from the '80s who is like almost insane and has done a ton of speed, mm -hmm. but does make like a, a like homely fun place. The other is one of those like. Um, like I lived in Thailand for ten years, and now I make Thai food in Portland, Oregon. Mm. Uh, for that costs three times the amount. Oh, yeah. And then there's the the insane millionaire maniacs who are just like, oh yeah, I definitely want to be a kingdom serfdom owner, <laughs> uh, and that's that's the Tiger King guy for sure. Um, but we're not here just to talk about kings and tigers. No, we're also here to talk about uh, David's union. That is sort of happening. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So we, uh, yeah. quick update. We went public on Monday, right? And what that means telling that yes. means telling our boss that we intend to unionize. Okay, they didn't respond for two days. We just sent the email. We launched our Twitter account. Follow at we are PMWG on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, we uh, and then on Wednesday we decided since they hadn't responded that we would, every single person who signed the petition would in, in unison ask during like a Zoom town hall whether the CEO will voluntarily recognize our union. And he <laughs> saw that we asked the question and then he said, well, I don't know. My initial thoughts are that um, he's, he's Southern. That's why he talks like that. And he's like, uh, my initial thoughts are that uh, it's just very sad. You know, unionizing is very sad. And so <laughs> it, makes wait, wait. Me, uh, it makes me sad. I, I get all the uh, feels when you guys do that. First off, they left you in radio silence for three days. And that made me think of those three little dots that you get when you know somebody's texting. Yeah. But the message doesn't come through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 
Wait, did you wait? Are you telling me though that you you essentially like digitally flash mobbed him? Yeah. Like you guys were you guys were all proverbially in Grand Central Station walking at the same time, and then you all froze, Bro. and he was the only person who was still walking. In, in case you're wondering how white my office is, we did an improv everywhere to our CEO. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so we we improv ev- everywhere at him, and we sent it out, and it was. That's all he really said. And then on Thursday, we found out that they hired an attorney from, and I, 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 I mean this uh, accurately, they hired an attorney from the largest corporate law firm in the world. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We got, what are they, from Texas? What's going on here? Are they big? <laughs> they, yeah. uh, it, this law firm is called Denton's, and they're not like the best law firm in the world, but by sheer number they are the largest yeah by girth by girth baby (laughs) yeah look they're not the longest but they got a huge amount of mass (laughs) it's a thick law firm and they uh yeah so denton's they have some denton's attorney and then found that out on thursday and then on friday our ceo sent a letter at the end of the day on friday for london time with like a full out explanation as to why they opposed the union and they said it was really sad, and it would like <laughs> again. And he said it would be like so bad for company unity that we need to be united in these tough times. Like he's fucking, <laughs> he's saying it as if he's like Winston Churchill or something. Like we're a financial publication, we're doing fine. Like we just got a private equity capital injection right before coronavirus hit of like ninety million dollars, a hundred million dollars, and we. They have been saying week after week that this has been our best month ever. All these financial institutions want want to read our shit. Um, and so so then he's like, now in this time of tragedy, this horrible, wretched moment, these people are attacking us. And so then... It's absolutely mental, bro. <laughs> <laughs> what you're doing is your collective bargaining is mental. What are you, stupid? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. You got uh, it. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, uh, don't. Uh, you got to find a way to exploit every crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he been. That's what he's thinking. Yeah. So he did that, and then we sent a clap back on our Twitter account at we are PMWG uh, to read that, and then we sent almost an identical one on Monday or this morning to the CEOs and to the whole company. Okay. Um. So we like basically hacked into the. Where we didn't hack, we like got the email addresses. <laughs> uh, I repeat, we did not hack. We did. We followed the rules. We did nothing. I'm in. <laughs> um, and by hack, I mean we looked up publicly available information for uh, employees, and we sure. got all the everyone's email address, and we like sent a response uh, to the employees directly, being like, "Look, we don't want to d- divide the workplace. We uh, we love you guys. Uh, we're just trying to like have the same." benefits that the uk employees have and we want to be able to pay be paid a new york salary and like our ceo had basically said that wanting to have better pay and better set and better benefits was having your cake and eating it too <laughs> you can't oh no you can't be throwing on french revolution stuff <laughs> that's no good yeah i mean he's just like he's like oh you want to end child labor and have a minimum wage like what are you napoleon <laughs> like it's ridiculous yeah so i mean uh as if it's like a zero sum thing like it's a it's a kind of a ridiculous logic if you think about it like he's well i 
it's just offensive that you're trying to form a union and stop the unity. Mm. It's a time for us to be unified. Yeah, baby. Yeah, dude. Dude, <laughs> obvious. Obvious. There, there can't be more than two or three words with the prefix of U N I. Mm. All right. The, but the fucking the fucking uh, bathtub is full, my man. You can't do that. Yeah, dude. I mean, for me, it's like underperforming noodle industries that's you and i for me but besides that there's union unity united uh unicycle unicycle uniqlo and that's it those are the only words let's start with that <laughs> unicef unicef oh, nice, is one nice good one that's a good that's a that, dude that's a very international very good one um but yeah so yeah that's that's cool yeah so he's been doing all that all that sort of stuff and he um and then today so basically right now after you form after you go public with your union you also file cards with the government and then the government calls the two lawyers in from both parties and they try to negotiate who's in the union and who is out of the union. That's what everyone tries to do, right? Um yeah. and they've been trying to negotiate who's going to be in and who's out and that's what we were dealing with all day today and that's why I'm very tired because I was on the phone and I was texting with people all day about that. So if I oh, damn. sound like um I sound like a bitch. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say if you sound like a big baby bitch. I sound like a big baby bitch. That's why, because I'm, no, I'm, I, I, I was gonna was call you my... a big wolf bitch. <laughs> yeah. You wolf mother. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I. I always think that I really do love that sentiment. Like it's so sad. Uh, just because. I, I don't know, like, obviously unions come up as a result of collective bargaining and wanting something better. So, like, if you really wanted to play it out uh, to its, like, logical conclusion, there would be no unions ever mm -hmm. if there were employers who were just like, I'm going to give you guys so many things and, like, actually follow through mm -hmm. with that. I, there w it would just be, it would be equitable already well, if there uh, was like a german you know like in germany like it, they have employees who are like on the board of directors of every company like yeah that yeah, sort of yeah stuff is nice i think that still having the a vehicle for collective bargaining is i think it's always necessary though uh, so i would sure sure I, yeah i think that that's like a, a helpful um little thing and and gabe is right though that like he'd been like it's disunifying to want to unionize and it's like it only is if you say it is, bruv. <laughs> we united together to form a union. I have talked to people in my office more through unionizing than I ever had by tenfold without the union. Like, I did not talk to anyone in my office before I started unionizing, except for, like, coffee, coffee machine's broken, huh? Like, that was it. That was the only yeah, words yeah, that yeah, I yeah. said. And now I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, what does your dad do for a living? Like, now I'm actually having, you know, conversation. That's actually, yeah. I mean, if we're taking it literally, it is sad for him hey. because he is not in the union. It's just like the No Homers Club. <laughs> like, uh... Hey, Billy. Hey, Joey. Come on in. There's plenty of room. Sorry, not you, Homer. Why not? But you let in Homer Glumplet. <laughs> It says no homers. We're allowed to have one. Yeah, but he just wants to be in the club. It's emotionally manipulative, like b to personalize it to be like it's sad. Mm -hmm. It like mm -hmm. that's like gaslighting shit that makes it sound like you're in a relationship with him mm -hmm. that's so like almost romantic <laughs> or some sort of friend entanglement. <laughs> where if the contract that you guys have or the arrangement is one that is monetary 
and based on work, yeah. labor, and professionalism, then who fucking cares about your feelings, dude? Yeah, man. Like, all we yeah. care about is the paycheck, and we care about the conditions of the workplace and having a collective, uh, clear-cut um, contract for how we're all supposed to behave. And this is... I didn't come here to make, I didn't come here to make friends. And this is why I like, ultimately <laughs> left the nonprofit sector, is because the nonprofit sector, much like the tech sector, actually, from what I've noticed for, as an outsider... They both suffer from cool boss syndrome, and oh, big time, my like, man! <laughs> you worked in tech, so you know this better. But in nonprofit, it's actually a little bit weirder. Nonprofit world is like, let's go around and before we start our meeting about our budget for the year, let's go around and like talk about our feelings and our weekend. Like, let's give everyone like a pulse check and see like what's going on with everyone's uh, relationship uh, with their ex boyfriend. And go around and just do like a thumbs up, thumbs sideways, thumbs down as to like how you're feeling, uh, you know, as to whether you love me or not as a boss. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and, yeah. It, and, and so they, and they do that stuff. And, it, and yeah. it's really like, it feels like emotionally exploitative because they're just like, we're, come on, let's just all check in, see how our emotions are doing before we like go over like a really procedural issue about like how you're going to make money this week. Right. It also, any uh, nonprofit, if, if it has a, a mission, Anything that has a mission, they are able to sell you on that rather than sell you on a fair wage. Mm. You're always at, like, teaching has that. That's part of teaching, too, where if you complain about the conditions in the classroom or you complain about the lack of resources or uh, how you're being treated, then they all, the, the management is able to look at, point to the children and say, well, look, by, by striking, uh, don't you see that you're you're hurting a child's um, education by taking a day out? Or why would you grumble yeah. and complain? You're being a bad role model to these kids. Ooh. Yeah. So yeah, this, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, because you're doing it because you love it, right? If you're doing it because you love it, then why should you be paid? Why don't you fucking marry your job, <laughs> bitch? You know, you should you should say in response like, oh, I mean, you're a boss because you love money. Right. So if you love if you're doing what you love, then you shouldn't why you shouldn't be getting paid either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, actually, this is a, a fun. This is a nice little uh, dovetail. I was watching the PBS Frontline documentary about Amazon and it came out. I came out just before Super Tuesday, I think, like pretty much February of this year. And one of Amazon's core, uh, quote unquote, like mission statements is uh we are obsessive about the customer our obsession is the customer and Ew. for years and years and years yeah i know right they they were able to play it off and be like no we're uh doing antitrust because we love the customer and we do this because of the customer but then in the documentary they very much allude to in the i believe um not the Securities Exchange dun, dun, Commission, dun, 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 dun. Um, but like just whoever takes care of antitrust, they're FCC. just they basically ex yeah the FCC they basically explain like uh, uh, FEC they explain like um, well the thing is is it's actually harder to uh, follow through with antitrust suits and legislation and stuff if the company can prove it's uh, for the customer's benefit essentially and not for their own personal expansion, which is like a real like fourth, you know, fourth dimensional chess move by like <laughs> Jeff Bezos to be like, we we love the customer and we obsess over baby, them and we pass baby, I, we pass all that stuff. Baby, I've been spying through your window at night 
not because of, because I'm obsessed with you, but it's really to protect you. Come on, baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, and also so I can build a, a, a fucking fort around your window I, in I your house. I broke into your house and I sniffed your panties because I'm like a I'm like a, I'm like <laughs> I'm like a police dog. I'm like a German shepherd. I gotta follow. I gotta make sure you're safe and I gotta get I gotta get your scent on me. You know that's what it is, baby. It's not. Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't be don't be freaked out. Don't no no don't don't call your dad. Don't call the cops. I, I, I'm I'm a good guy. My name's Jeff. Okay. <laughs> en- enough with that. <laughs> My name is <laughs> Jeff Bezos. Uh. Yeah. Uh, good dovetail though into the documentary that we do we all did we all watch the new Michael Moore produced documentary? Oh, yeah. Did you guys watch oh, yeah. it? You mean yeah. you mean Planet of the Humans? Planet of the Humans. Uh yeah, uh there's there's a couple notes on this. Uh first of all, I would say do not watch this if you're not having a good day. Mm, yeah. It's <laughs> probably good. It's one of those it's it's one of those Bumaruski. that is like it's very good. It's a very good documentary and is also uh incredibly bleak. It is <laughs> it is one of the, it is one of the most the bleakest forms of art uh in recent history that I'll I've watched. I'll have a bummeroni uh, pizza with extra cheese and Yeah, yeah. That's what that doc uh, was. Yeah, but th- there's I mean it's a very good doc. Uh there's a lot of good stuff in it, but the one thing that I noticed because and since we've started the podcast was a little detail in the end of it. Um the ba- the basic theory of it is is that uh, uh all the green energy uh sort of industries that exist are as exploitative as kind of like petroleum and carbon-based industries. And they talk about how it's a really big growing business market in it. And more specifically, at one point in the documentary, they actually directly reference our good friends, uh, BlackRock. Mm. The inv- What would you call them? Asset an investment man- firm? Asset or- manager. An asset manager. And it directly relates to, I want to say, like episode eight of the podcast mm-hmm. or something like that, where we talked about how BlackRock was, quote-unquote, moving towards, like, sustainables. Mm-hmm. And when I saw them in that back then, I made the sort of uh, naive comment, like, oh, it's like if J- Japan became vegan all of a sudden. Uh, but it turns out a lot of those sustainables are also just actually uh, biomass, which is actually just <laughs> uh, wood. <laughs> it's just literally... Would <laughs> that was that was the most astounding thing about the documentary was just the level of literally just burning trees that we are. At. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was well, dude, they or, went old school with or it. We're like, well, we need to stop. Uh, we need to stop extracting energy from the earth. What else can we get oil from? Why don't we just uh, harvest all of these whales? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, go yeah. back to whale oil burning. It was literally like, oh, the 19th century energy was bad. Let's do the 18th. Let's let's try the 18th again, century. Yeah, yeah it was it was uh, it was really intense, and I, I mean, it was also very illuminating. It's a really good uh, it's a really good documentary for people to confirm oh, again that Al Gore is a piece of shit. He's in it for sure. I um, I. I I actually did not think that it was a really good documentary. I, I'll, I'll push back on it a little bit. I liked it for two reasons. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I, I just want, I mean, like, I, I think that it's fair enough for us to have, I, I, and it's really more from, like, I think it's message of capitalism will not, like, save us from climate change is yeah. super important. And talking about how, like, all these, like, major environmental orgs are, like, can be easily bought and can be very easily corrupted are all very 
good like observations to make. Uh, I don't. I found some of his things a little confusing, though. And I also, again, I also really liked the way he talked about biomass. I didn't know all that about biomass, but some of the ways that he framed other issues were not as clear, and he didn't always focus on those two things. Like he talked about how wind is so bad, and his example was he talked about how it requires concrete to be built. And I don't think that anyone was ever trying to assert that wind doesn't require concrete to be built. Like, I, I sort of feel like it kind of criticized renewable energy to the point that it tried to draw moral equivalency between coal and wind. And I just don't necessarily think that that's, like, fair they also had this like uh one one last thing on it. They also had this like mountaintop thing where they were like in Vermont and there was this family yeah, about yeah. how like oh my god like this is basically like mountaintop removal for wind and I found that to be like actually just straight up NIMBY bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it was very Vermont. That was very sure. that was that for was sure. I, I actually found that like the fact that they were calling themselves environmentalists for like opposing the aesthetics of a wind turbine being put on top of this mountain and they're like i can't take my kids to this mountain anymore our future is gone <laughs> because this turbine I'm like you may as well be donald trump complaining about the wind turbines opposing your view of a golf course you know like that's yeah. the exact same moral argument they were making but because they like present themselves as like a hippie aesthetic all of a sudden they're like have like moral authority now, uh, my take on it is that we uh, we like to cover white collar crime here, and for me, a lot of that too is covering scams and covering the way that uh, people misrepresent themselves. Mm. So, what I loved yes. about this uh, documentary was how it brought greenwashing to light. I think for a lot of people who are walking around, sort of sleepwalking, looking at plastic products and seeing that plastic product says organic on it where there's nothing, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. We, we find a way where, we, where we've kind of put ourselves to sleep uh, because we uh, put recycling in two different bins. Totally. And then we've got our trash. And then you say, yeah. but it, it, like the nightmare comes from just thinking, well, where does my trash actually go? Like I put out bag, I put out three big bags of plastic bags of trash every Wednesday and then another bag of trash out every Monday and every Friday. And the, none of this stuff is like going back into the ground in any way that's sustainable. Yeah. So no. that's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and all of that is just ending up in, was being shipped off to China, we found out. And China isn't reusing any of this. It's just burning it. Uh, so that isn't connected exactly to what this documentary is, but it is how we have sort of gone to sleep thinking that just... Like, what if all of us had Teslas? What, yeah. like, if everybody in the emerging, um, in the third world, like th this tech utopia that we think we're moving towards, if a billion people in India and a billion people in China and every American has a Tesla, then what is the actual amount of energy and the uh, raw, uh, rare earth materials that need to be extracted? And carbon emissions for that? reduced. Yeah, now the, yeah. They, the, the carbon might be reduced, but all, but think of like what does it cost to have all of that like uh, radioactive material or that lithium or all that stuff certainly put into a car that's only going to last for thirty years? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it, it was a uh, it was a very <laughs> the one thing um uh from like a social standpoint and a production standpoint uh, and I don't know if you guys picked up on this too uh but uh, obviously this was a Michael Moore pr- you know produced uh, do- documentary <laughs> an MM joint do- yeah, yeah it baby. was it was and I realized <laughs> it only today that even though the guy who was narrating was I in my opinion much less charismatic. And interesting. Yo, he sounded like Michael Siri. Moore. He sounded like boy Siri. <laughs> he, he did. He did. But it, it was totally for a reason because in the in our year of our Lord, 2020, Michael Moore cannot go to any event with a camera and a microphone without people being like, I don't want to talk to you, man. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. You're gonna you're gonna fucking make me look terrible. So he <laughs> he absolutely had to launder his, his ideas into that situation. Uh, and uh, just actually, ma- that's the only way he could get his um his act like the information he kind of wanted to get through. Totally, yeah. Um, he's he's suffering from the Ali G problem. Totally. I really, really did like how it talked about greenwashing as a concept, and that is is good to talk about that as a scam. I will say, I thought it was a little behind. I think that we've talked about greenwashing. And it has advanced far more in the past three years, uh, at least in the financial sector and the investment sector and all over the place. Like there are like dozens. There is an entire cottage industry of people calling out people for greenwashing in the financial sector and everywhere. And I think that he didn't really focus on that. Like when we looked at when the documentary talked about like this one fund that 350.org claimed was renewable yeah. and it turns out it was not woke uh, that <laughs> happens all the time like i spoke to a financial advisor who said that yeah we just don't even recommend any renewable energy uh investment vehicle promoted by vanguard which is like what like the third largest asset manager in the world he said because yeah they're yeah, just yeah, not yeah. good they just th- none of them are actually legit they're just so i mean like what i feel like what he did was he talked about it he kind of glossed over it and then he didn't really get into all the details i mean there are like separate indices for judging all the criteria by which something could be a false profit could be bad could be greenwashed in some way you know they their sourcing is bad their slave labor they whatever 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 ad infinitum right and those things all exist and he didn't really go into that and he kind of left you with one of two choices being so pissed off that you are compelled to action and move forward and push things forward. Or you're like, there's some parts of the documentary where he was like, where he literally interviewed someone, an anthropologist, the anthropologist was like, yeah, I think we're fucked. And I don't (laughs) think that that's necessarily productive, especially when he's not conveying all the facts or the most, all the most like up-to-date facts. Like if you just have someone go on and say, oh, yeah, we're fucked. The world is fucked. You may as well give up now. Everything is bad. Everything that you thought was good is is impure and will always be flawed. Then, like, that is just not good for the left. That's, like, not good for the planet. And if his goal as a documentarian is to promote the discourse and get people to be better as environmentalists, then I feel like mm-hmm. that d- doesn't do it. Here, this is what I think, though, is that uh, uh, Michael Moore has a very small fan base. 
who I I love what he's doing. And I watch this and maybe I already have a pretty bleak disposition, mm. but I can watch really <laughs> terrible things and 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 leave feeling like, well, it was really cool that that raised my awareness around how how this is bullshit. So I'm not going to waste my time and energy giving money to like the Sierra Club. Yeah. But sure, sure, it also sure. allows me to see that uh like I like I don't I don't need the documentaries or the things I read to give me a next step. I think that that in and of itself creates a form of paralysis where you know, we can say like, yeah, slavery's bad. Like let's take that and it's like people could say that but they wouldn't come up with the they won't tell you what the next step is because the next step isn't legislative it's not democracy like slavery didn't end because people voted like it ended yeah. because of a radical uh civil like a civil war between you know yeah there's a little bit of everything uh, for this you know cuz like i was kind of in the middle because i mean i consider myself to be a fairly well informed person but i mean I guess I I mean like look I knew I knew getting cobalt was really hard I didn't think it was that, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't I didn't think it was that hard and looking at it, I'm like damn you're right all this rare earth mining is incredibly extractive and like just definitely destroys things for sure and I mean I I think I I think he could have said this more explicitly which is just like uh, which I know sort of flies in the face in some of some left theory but basically like look y'all we consume a lot yeah. And we probably shouldn't. And not only should we probably not, but there are people all throughout the world who are not people who are part of the United States of America who do consume less. And that is he he probably should have just said in that like yeah, he should have exactly. done that that weird in that weird infograph where it's like if every person on the earth consumed as much as Americans, we would need six Earths. He should have right. he should have pulled that one. I wish out, you know? I wish he had offered at least a few examples of like someone doing it right. You know, like instead I sort of felt like he was just like, I lived in the woods and I chopped down my own trees for my own wood stove and I had solar panels and then I became an environmental reporter. And then, but we don't really see like, he talks a lot about how all like various sectors of the renewable energy world are bad was was it impossible for him to find one that was like you know what actually this one's doing okay um and instead i feel like he kind of would get that that would be something that i would like to see in terms of prescription obviously like i think that like you know very radical systemic changes to capitalism are like are necessary to tackle the climate crisis and i agree with this with that level of change is needed in the same way that it was for slavery but uh i don't think that he really said that and i also don't really <laughs> think i he didn't say that and i also don't think he really no, you're yeah. right. showed us like a good company that was doing a good thing and i also don't think he really showed us like here's a village of people that are living a low carbon life they just consume very little like he didn't i mean show us really yeah. any solutions of any examples of like this is the right thing to do instead he like interviewed like a couple random vermonters who were like there's just too many people in the world, which is like I've, oh, I, yeah. I find that stuff is like should be discredited on its face. That is like Malthusian, very likely racist kind of stuff, in my opinion. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I that whole overpopulation theory thing is like 
really, really tricky territory, especially when like rich white people start talking about it, in my opinion. Uh, shout outs to eco fascism. Yeah. Which is what I think you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, bro. And- yeah. <laughs> dude, dude, I, dude, I fucking love how much he made uh, two things. I, I, you're right. He didn't do a lot of good prescribing, but the people he hated on, ooh, mwah, chef's True. kiss. Like he, at, he absolutely, like when he showed those fucking stupid hippies, like there's that one shot, there's one shot in that movie where it just shows some dirty hippie feet. W- dancing in mud and i was just like i detest so effective i detest i detested these idiotic vermonters and then the one other thing i was able to okay. deduce from this who's the guy who who was in, in charge of 350 that bald guy what's his name bill mckibben that man's mouth looks like if an anus were talking mm. all right i absolute he is one of the he has one of the grossest faces that i've ever seen like he talks like an orangutan would talk he's, like he's so disgusting he's got like mick jagger's mouth if mick jagger's mouth had like a bastard stepson yes yes it's like kind of there it's he, like the it, wicked, he is so it's, yeah, it's like the wicked stepbrother of of mick jagger i hated bill mckibben and i am really glad and you're right i think there's a lot i think it could need need some stuff but i'm so glad they just there was a lot of shots of that asshole like straight up cavorting with like all these like True. you know fossil fuels and petrochemical like companies. So, sometimes, sometimes I would see this documentarian. What's his name again? Uh, Jeff, uh, and he would be like interviewing someone. And Gibbs, J- Jeff Gibbs, Jeff Gibbs, and sometimes Gibbs, I just yeah. wanted to be like, "Hey man, they're trying their best." <laughs> <laughs> like he, you like, know, he would like interview like a renewable energy company, and they'd be like, D- "I see that you uh, have some shattered glass that's littering the desert, and that is causing this <laughs> solar erosion for these rare lizards." And and, and I just want to be like, "They're trying, man. I don't know what to tell you. They're trying. Just throw them a bone yeah. a little bit, <laughs> you know." <laughs> there, there were there were a couple times because you know there's like bill mckibben had the most on its face like i'm i'm just going to ignore you moment but there were a lot of company spokespeople who are like man you're right about that hmm that's man that's a bummer that is a problem yeah there and were. Then he's like look at this fucking asshole <laughs> yeah i mean i also look at uh, like what my final thought on this movie was that it just showed me how things get corrupted when you make a faustian bargain with uh big business Mm. you know and absolutely and Mm -hmm. i was just watching this and thinking oh this is like the dnc this is this is everybody compromising right now to like get joe biden in office Mm -hmm. this is us backing a delaware democrat instead of like a populist Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, so i'm giving it i'm giving it four out of five bags of popcorn uh and uh and one jam band you know that's what i'm giving it uh <laughs> i'll give it uh three and a half barrels of crude oil <laughs> and uh <laughs> two solar panels i'm gonna get yeah i'm yeah. gonna give it two shattered solar panel glass glasses <laughs> for the desert destroying i'm gonna give it yeah. some uh <laughs> joshua tree wood chips yeah <laughs> Oh, that was that was yeah. sad to watch. Um, <laughs> oh my god, when they when they fuck man. it, they just. And then the, well, I'm gonna get, give this movie five <laughs> exhausted orangutans. <laughs> yeah, that was that was bleak as shit. 
Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Oh my guys, god! Guys, guys, yeah. that was the perfect transition. Speaking of exhausted orangutans, uh, <laughs> Martin Shkreli seeks early prison release. Says that he can help no. with coronavirus. <laughs> Let my people go. <laughs> so he's got dude, he's got the Martin Shkreli has the current record for most punchable face but bill mckibben is a close second for sure oh yeah oh yeah i love him i love it. they should kiss i want to i want to watch that uh i want to watch the episode uh, of oz with martin screlly <laughs> <laughs> just getting just getting shanked by jk simmons or whatever he did in that um so apparently yeah. so apparently his lawyer wrote mr screlly has spent countless hours while incarcerated researching disease treatments and possible cures for covid-19 his Hell yeah, my man's got, my man's got <laughs> schematics on the walls. He's using napkins from the commissary and just like <laughs> he's got beautiful mind sketches like plastered all over. And yeah, like just... his cell his cellmate's like, hey man, leave me some space for my girlfriend's picture. Yeah, yeah. He just got all the Snickers wrappers just sort of taped. It's like <laughs> Fuck God, yeah, dude. What a fucking what a fucking asshole. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. He's using like the Tony Stark uh like defense, you know? Oh he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like, look, uh, if you just get me these materials from the commissary and the you know, and the shop, the wood shop, I'll make myself a suit and yeah, sell. No. I learned how to make another prescription drug costs 1,000 times more with just a, a a pile of wood chips, a little bit of petroleum, and and a fire a heat source. What I would love is if, if you got- he actually um, developed this, if he actually cured coronavirus, and then he just, like, price gouged the shit out of it like he did the first time that got him in jail oh my like (laughs) like if he if he just got if he just like actually found a cure and he's like no no no, it's gonna be twenty thousand dollars per person um oh my god and you need to give me the wu-tang clan oh yeah yeah Ah! an album no all of them uh so apparently one company is actually prepared to begin to begin working on clinical trials of mr shkreli's work within weeks that company's name, what? Charlie Brown, uh, football. <laughs> all right, all right, guys. Uh, God, uh, I—they're just such fucking suckers. I, uh, I so stupid. I so how? There's no way he's gonna get out. I mean, there's no way. Uh, man. Ex- yeah, that that that's one guy. Uh, that's one guy. They're probably going to leave in there, uh, dude. But I, I respect the hustle, man. You got to shoot your shot. Shoot your shot, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how did he get that? How did he get this press release out from jail? Like, did he talk to his lawyer? Or yeah, something? They or it. Like- yeah, they filed it. They filed it, and there's some journalist who was probably uh, following his case. Um, yeah, I guess so. God, God, how many? How, like, think about that. Some journalist is just like, everybody hates this man, but I know if I know if I print something about it, it will generate a million likes mm-hmm. and and AKA one thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. It's just to, for what? For what? <laughs> That's how journalism works. Uh, yeah, brother. So speaking of uh, being duped and uh, everyone shooting their shot, key 2008 financial crisis players are back for coronavirus. All right. Woo! So, Hell love yeah, it. dude. Yeah. So you sent me this, and it made me think of the uh, of the deck of playing cards that every American troop received when they invaded Iraq. What? Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. When, uh, yeah. Because, you know, Americans didn't, all of our troops didn't know what the enemy looked like. Mm-hmm. But so they got a deck of playing cards that had uh, on every card was the face of one of the top Iraqi government officials. Sick. That they were supposed to capture or kill. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. How did it. And what. And what you're showing me now is this rogues gallery of all of our financial leaders from 2008. Back, baby. You know, when things went went really well. (laughs) So in 2008, Steve Mnuchin was the co-founder of Dune Capital Management. And in early 2009, Mnuchin led a group of investors who purchased failed subprime mortgage lender IndyMac and ran the bank until its sale in 2015. And now he's the Treasury Secretary of the United States. Um. <laughs> then Ben Bernanke was the cha- Ben Bernanke was the chair of the Federal Reserve, and now he is a fellow at the Brookings Institute and a senior advisor at Citadel and Pimco. Uh, Pimco's a asset manager, Prudential Investment Management Company. Tim Geithner, president of the Federal Reserve in two thousand eight. <laughs> uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in two thousand eight, and now he is the president of Warburg Pincus. Uh, that is a he helps manage the investment process at a private equity firm. So he works for a private equity firm now. All right, Tim Geithner. All right. Uh, yeah, it was Hank Paulson, Ben Bernanke, and Tim Geithner mm-hmm. who were the main subjects of that weird Vice deck documentary, which we'll probably talk about. It's worth at some talking point about in the future. Yeah, because it is utter. That one. That pff, I'm going to tell you guys right now. One bag out of five bags of popcorn. <laughs> uh, real bad. Uh, but yeah, of course, all these. Go- of course, all these ghouls are back. Of course. <laughs> uh, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock in 2008. Still CEO of BlackRock. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase in 2008. Still CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase in, uh, right now. Hank Paulson, U.S. Treasury Secretary in 2008. Now he's the chairman of the Paulson Institute. You can't just name something after yourself, man. No, 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 no. You can't do that. You have to, I mean... Say what you will about who's the guy who did Blackwater. Who was that guy's name? Oh, uh, Eric Prince. Eric Prince. Eric Prince. Say what you will about Eric Prince, but at least he named something Blackwater. Something like Blackwater's real evil. <laughs> like he named it. He he picked. He was like, Nah, man, I'm a defense contractor. I am very evil. <laughs> so apparently now he is focused on improving China-U.S. relations in the Paulson Institute. What sort of money laundering scheme is that? Right, like. Focused on improving China-U.S. relations. That's got to be like he like has equity in like some rare earth mineral company, or like he oh, like own, he like owns stock in Huawei, or he like I don't know Alibaba. He he's doing some weird stuff with Alibaba and Facebook data privacy sharing. Like I don't I don't trust anyone who says that they're trying to someone like Hank Paulson who's trying to improve China-U.S. relations. That can't be that can't be a good a force for good. No, it means it means every every month Hank Paulson goes over to the Chinese province with all the Uyghurs and then just kicks one of them in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so next we got Tom Montag, head of sales and trading at Merrill Lynch in 2008. Now he is the COO of Bank of America. Neil Kashkari in 2008 he was the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Now he is the President of the Federal Reserve of Minneapolis. Raj Raj Cohen was the chairman of Sullivan Sullivan and Cromwell, uh, which is a corporate law firm that deals with the securities industry. Like it's a Wall Street law firm, and now he's still mm. the chairman of Sullivan and Cromwell. Alan Schwartz, CEO of Bear Stearns in two thousand eight. Bear Stearns collapsed, but he is 
<laughs> but for some reason, he is um, the co-chairman of Guggenheim Securities. He is still allowed to work in the financial sector after he was the CEO of Bear Stearns. Just thinking about that. Uh, yeah. Well, look, dude, how many planes did John McCain crash? Mm. <laughs> it was like dude it was like six he America, crashed like six planes <laughs> dude we love it like the more spectacularly you crash and burn something mm-hmm. the you we're just gonna give you another position higher up mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you're just like get in this party come on <laughs> i want to see what you can fuck up in here <laughs> next we got jim milstein co-head of uh, corporate restructuring at lazard which is now he is the at lizard at lizard. He's he's the co-structuring at, at lizard. <laughs> he joined uh, the treasury in 2009 and oversaw the restructuring of AIG, the insurance firm that made big bets on the subprime market and crashed. Uh, now he is Woo. the co-chairman of Guggenheim Securities. So Alan Schwartz and Jim Milstein, the boys are together. Yeah, <laughs> they're back in town, some might even so say. So Bloomberg reported that he will likely be working on a raft of new restructurings in the current crisis as firms struggle with the economic fallout. Uh, that means uh, your boy's trying to grift, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I mean, for what it's, I, I don't know if this is worth anything, but it just, you know, like when the 2008-2009 financial crisis happened, I think that the biggest direct um, response to that was Occupy Wall Street. I mean, that was incredibly linked to that. You know, you had the 99% what have mm-hmm. you. And, you know, I think people are just, they're, they're very much more mobilized today. They're a little bit more aware of some of the things that are happening. I really don't. I mean, all bets are off in terms of like whatever, you know, organization or whatever sort of like collective voice appears from that because if it even comes out a fraction as much as it did during occupy like woo it's gonna be a doozy my man oh yeah baby yeah 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 god willing these are all the people that uh basically created the the situation the context in which donald trump appeared attractive Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because and, um, yeah, we're it's a hard reset back to like the big grift. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah, um, we'll have to see. Uh, I had if uh, if 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 I'm at all hopeful at all, I think uh, I think the conversation will go a little bit different than a bunch of kind of like smelly uh, activists in Zuccotti Park uh, yell being like, "Who wants to have beans tonight?" Who wants to have beans tonight? You know, it's uh, there's gonna be we're gonna be different from that the the old human megaphone days. I just, and I wonder how many people who created that aesthetic that you're talking about, Danny, were actually yeah. um, sort of like paid off provocateurs. Oh that yeah, were, that's t- entirely that, possible. That were that were brought in to disrupt and uh, undermine. I love solidarity. Wait, movement. I'm sorry. You guys don't like the mic check thing. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh mic check. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who's here for real hip hop, hip hop. <laughs> uh, yeah. I uh, we'll, we'll find out guys. Uh, anyways, we, I think that, uh, we wake up every day and we just, uh, as if it's before the 2008, Crash, basically, it's like we're Drew Barrymore in 51st States. That is what we're destined for. 
you're going to see the same people wake up and do the same thing all over again. And there was there were no consequences for the financial crisis. There was one person who went to jail, and that I think that was because uh, legally it was because he was Ukrainian, and that was a disc- that, that was legally <laughs> Look, a sanctioned uh, discrimination against Ukrainian people. And that's the only reason why you went you to gotta, jail. You got to. And you got to you you got to throw them in jail. You got to throw all Ukrainians <laughs> in jail. Mm-hmm. I've been saying that. I've been saying that. And so they uh yeah, and no one else did. And now all these guys are doing the exact they're, they're all they're all back in the game. And that's exciting. I think that is a good segue into the last thing that we wanted to talk about, which is self-reporting. Yeah, this is David when David sent over um the uh how would you put it the the readings the <laughs> the literature for this this topic he self-proclaimed that it is a bit wonky it's a little bit confusing but i have to say uh it is um it's actually i mean it make it makes it makes sense to me and it's uh uh the self-reporting thing uh, i'm I have thoughts on it, but you you start out, David, because I think you're going to be able to paint a little better picture. Okay, so we're talking about a really, really specific area of mutual funds. Mutual funds are like retirement plans and things that, that everyday people invest in with their spare money, right? And when you do that, there are different classes of shares that you can invest in a mutual fund, and those have different risk levels, those have different like capital requirements, those have different performance things. So uh, they're just different, right? It's like different little uh, lanes on a highway that you can choose. And sometimes some of them can involve higher fees. These different share classes can involve higher fees for marketing and distribution of the mutual funds themselves, because then you have Sure. Right? And those are called 12B1 fees. Those are marketing and distribution right. fees or 12B1s. 12, 12B1. Remember remember that specific order of letters and numbers because that, that comes back multiple times. Yeah. 12B1. So there are basically what it seems like is the SEC realized that there are a huge number of firms that have been coaxing investors into investing in share classes of mutual funds where they fail to disclose that they could have invested in share classes that don't have 12b1 fees okay whoa yeah yeah so that's that's what i'd call steering yeah, in uh, real Ooh, estate, yeah. that would be called steering. It, yeah, I mean it's steering. It's, it's kind. Of, I mean, it, it, in in a lot of like industries, it would be something that would be uh, just kind of upselling, basically. Hmm. Yes. Yes. It's, but but these people do they? It sounds like the reason this is a problem is because they have a fiduciary duty. Fiduciary duty. A fiduciary duty is an obligation to act in the best financial interest of another party. Yes, they can't, under the Securities and Exchange Act, can't do that, okay? They can't conceal information about the availability of cheaper options. And they were concealing cheaper options intentionally, mostly because people don't understand what the fuck they are, right? 
but also because they had a conflict of interest and they had they stood to gain from these fees. That's what it was. So they failed to disclose the conflict of interest. They hid this uh, information or they presented misleading information. For all those reasons, the SEC said, this is a bad. And what they decided... To- <laughs> it is, is a it bad. Is bad. I'm not good. I don't like. <laughs> so <laughs> what they decided to do was they created this initiative where they created a self-reporting initiative where they said, all right, we know that this is ubiquitous, basically across the entire asset management industry, big boys, small boys, medium boys, uh, <laughs> all of them. They're all doing it. And we just, just give up your goods and we'll be lenient with you. And if you don't, then we'll be hard on you. And that's basically what they did. And so over 100 firms gave up the goods over the course of the past year. And they cooperated, they presented their shit, and they ended up giving back something like $139 million to investors in all these fees that they um, illegally collected, basically. And that's the majority of it. The SEC kind of went back uh, and still... So some of their attorneys were like, oh, don't think that this is me. That means you're, you're like off the hook and that you can keep uh, violating these 12B1 fee uh, share class disclosure violations. Uh, they didn't. And they uh, turns out they, the SEC still kept cracking down, even with people who cooperated. All right. The weird thing about it is, is that it's like, did more people get money back? And that's what I want to talk about is like, did this do better for investors than if they had just continued to do regular enforcements and find these fees on their own and charge people for Hmm. what it's worth? I I want to say my initial answer to that is yes, sort of. Um, Like when I when I was reading this, there was a couple of things that sort of uh, popped into my head. Uh, And the first was this sort of. all right, you guys, the, the, it's not like the jig is up, but we know that there's a little bit of cheating going on here. So ante up and let us know. And when I thought, when I heard that in the, when I, when I read that in articles, the first thing that popped in my head is like, this is like white collar dream act. Like they want, they want like, all right, we know there are illegal people in the country right mm-hmm. now. And you guys are here through no fault of your own. It just sort of happened. But we want you to we want to give you citizenship. We want to we want to have this happen. So go ahead. Come on in and uh, self-report what's happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, nothing bad will ever happen. We're going to we're going to find you a little bit, but don't worry about it. And um, I think it's I mean, it's the opposite in the sense that I, I think the Dream Act is good and that I think that people should be allowed to stay here. But I, I do think it is. Uh, it's a but, little different uh, also because you can make an argument that, you know, dreamers being in the country is a victimless crime, right? Yeah. No, my, my, the only point that I was trying to make was is like, yeah, man, if you if you self-report this, uh, it definitely will make it. So if you are a financial firm, you're going to you might be on a list, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They're going to have records of you doing stuff. 
So if you wanted, if you wanted to be evil, <laughs> there's definitely less incentive to do this. Because <laughs> they they got they're looking at you now. I mean, I just wrote a story. Yeah, hey, I, I didn't send you guys this, but I literally just finished the story today. One of the people or one of the firms that settled in the first round last like a year ago just got fined again for the same violations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they got, caught, I like they got caught this time. That's they, good. They didn't self-report this time. They got caught. Uh, so they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't change their behaviors. I guess there so. was no rehabilitation. <laughs> I guess so. I yeah. mean, it's kind of like, well, part of the good thing about it, you could think about it as like, well, they couldn't afford to hire more enforcement people because basically no one has raised the SEC's budget in like a decade. And they've been on a hiring freeze since the financial crisis, which is insane that during a financial crisis, they would have fewer <laughs> SEC employees. It's a ridiculous, <laughs> it's a ridiculous concept, but they do. Uh, and what that makes you think about is why you, whether that is helping investors, like are more investors getting returns from this or not? And I, I don't know. I, 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 I can't really tell. When you said 130 million, I was like, oh, cool, 130 million. But in my mind, I was like, I mean, that that's got to there's got to be a higher number. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, I mean, the, this yeah. still is absolutely going on, and this is absolutely something that is has been harming people for decades, and probably will continue to do so. Yeah, I mean, it's, remember, like BlackRock is what, like, what? How many trillion? I and, believe you so, said it's like seven trillion. Yeah, is, seven there, trillion? is there a rating? Is there like a report card or a rating system where there are more trustworthy um, investment uh, organizations that you can put your money into yeah. where they're not going to be doing this? Yes and no. If someone is your financial advisor, they have a legal duty to be a straight-A student. So it's kind of hard to really rate people because that's suggesting that anyone isn't a straight a student right that makes it tough broker we have broker check so if there's like an individual broker dealer and if you guys remember a broker mm -hmm. and an advisor are different and they have different duties yeah. to you right uh so brokers have broker check which shows all the times that brokers were naughty boys <laughs> <laughs> and besides that there's no real way of knowing except for kind of looking into SEC filings or following the news as to like who is robbing or skimming off the top uh, or upselling their clients more than anyone else. It, it, it's not really, there's not really, I guess to answer your question, Gabe, not really. So there's no, so there's no consumer advocates. There's no protection for the, for an investor. To be able to like give grades as to like how many violations or how much money individual gigantic you know multi trillion dollar asset managers are forking over, I mean I guess that would be something where for consumers that would be that sounds like that would be something either in the purview of the SEC uh, or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, frankly. Because like you're telling me about there there's some companies that that self disclose, yeah, and other ones didn't. Mm -hmm. So, like, the ones that didn't, would they get a lower grade or would they get a higher grade? Because if they didn't disclose, does that mean that they have nothing to hide? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, Come on, you yeah. know? And then of the ones that did disclose, 
was there a metric to decide like how much how how egregious their upselling was were some uh committing more like uh misdemeanor level infractions mm-hmm. of upselling by a couple dollars mm-hmm. versus upselling by hundreds of thousands in terms of fleecing their clients. Yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately like the the kind of the weird catch-22 that you're always going to get with some sort of self-reporting initiative is that if you ever try and use carrots to coax crime out into the world, into the public, you're never going to fully know what was actually disclosed. Because uh, yeah, it, unless yeah. you do it by force, like what enforcement does, which is they get a warrant, they go in, they check all your stuff, they check, they run all your numbers, and they look through and see what laws you broke. That if you do a self-reporting, you're just never going to have that, and you're always going to have Gabe's question, which is, was it enough? Was it good enough? <laughs> Did I do enough? Well, who was, who was the good guys and who was the bad guys? We're never going to know. Well, okay, okay. So I was writing this down so I could kind of like articulate this the correct way because I I think you you're asking the question, was this a good thing, you know, and the sort of argument for it not being as good as a good of a thing is that like, well, we won't necessarily know this, but I like I was thinking about it and I think it could be okay if only from like a sort of like a perception point of view for the SEC, because you, you did say like, this is a organization that monitors trillions and trillions and trillions of yeah. dollars as it's, as it's, as it sort of like moves through the economy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's sort of supposed to catch the bad actors or at least have some sort of meaningful involvement in their day to day or what have you. And it's a institution that since the financial crisis has bit not really gotten many more workers. It has, it, there's less people working at it. Like yeah. it, to me, th- th- this sort of sounds, you know what this sounds like? It's like when I watched McMillions where they were talking about how uh, the FBI who looked into the McDonald's uh, board game scandal was not out of DC or New York or whatever. It was out of fucking, you know, Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> and because it was like this, you know, the, it was a small FBI uh, branch of the FBI who were largely underutilized. And trust me, I don't like the FBI, but their whole involvement with this thing, th- because they had a an assignment, so to speak, it was like, we have been allocated this budget and now we can sort of do more with it. Yeah. You know, we can kind of go forward and do more. Now, I don't think that the Securities and Exchange Commission is always going to necessarily be a good actor. Mm -hmm. But when you even sent this to me in the first place, I was like, well, at least they're doing something. Yeah. Like something is is, is being accomplished. And uh, at least they're trying. I don't know. At least. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a sign of weakness, Danny. It's a sign of weakness (laughs) when the cops have to come out and say, "Okay, guys. Who's committing crimes? Show of hands. Yeah. I'm going to let you well, all off the hook if you just tell me who's doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's the other thing, too, is that is like is it's sort of the political will because it's like, oh, dude, would I want do I want people in like fucking like, you know, Letterman looking like ass jackets that say SEC to like 
like go into a Watergate situation, find a bunch of people committing crimes and shredding papers. Like, yeah, that'd be, that would be great. But like, it just seems <laughs> like for the political will for that to happen, for the resources. I mean, these are agencies where people are const they're constantly talking about like, oh, we got to get this approved through this and get this approved through that. Mm-hmm. So in order for them to actually accomplish anything, it just takes so much longer. They're just five steps behind the actual ball when it comes to doing it. And it's like, I don't know. I've just, I think I've learned, especially through doing this podcast that like financial companies, you know, BlackRock, uh, UBS, all these losers, they just, they're going to commit a million crimes. (laughs) So it's, it's like, if we could catch a hundred thousand of them, I mean, it's, it almost sort of feels like harm reduction in a way. Again, Mm. I, I don't think the SEC is even the best body for it. I wish there was some Avengers out there who were just uh, committing uh, vigilante white collar like like I want I want Batman to do to that Chinese guy that Hong Kong guy oh, cool. in the Dark Knight Rises. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, that was yeah. really cool. <laughs> where he where he kidnapped someone hooked. from an airplane. Yeah, I w- yeah, yeah that I mean that would be tight if that happens. Uh, it just doesn't seem like that uh, is going to. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hear what you're saying, man. I mean, and like I. Last year, before the initiative even really kicked off, there were some like investor advocates who were like, "All right, I mean, let's see how it goes. It could be good." Uh, there's not, there wasn't really any real way of knowing. And again, that gets back to the was this good? Was this not? And like the story that I wrote about today, you know, in a year ago, this firm RBC Capital Markets, they're the Royal Bank of Canada. They were they got hit with a settlement of eleven million last March in the, mm-hmm. in the self-reporting thing for the same violations. As far as I could tell, they got 3.9 yesterday. Okay. And so, I mean, we, I was expecting that if you did not give everything up, then they would go hard on you. Right. That was kind of the assumption is that if you didn't, fully comply i mean because that's the that's like the any incentive to to cooperate with this is that the hope that you're going to get a lenient sentence or a lenient penalty and i didn't see that evidence necessarily with rbc i don't really know i don't i don't know if they necessarily got as lenient of a sentence of a a penalty even though they didn't self-report these specific share class disclosure violations the exact same thing yeah. Um. I, I. Well. I don't know. Maybe it's also just building precedent, too. You mm-hmm. know. It's like you. I. I also just watched the Waco Netflix series. Uh. And <laughs> where they were. <laughs> I, I get. You know. Initially, they they did manage to get thirty people outside of uh the Branch Davidians compound, and they did it. They did it through uh you know self reporting like measures. Okay. And then uh and then. The, and then they didn't. And then, uh, uh, like what? Like a hundred people burned to death because the FBI was just like bringing the tear gas. <laughs> Word. <laughs> any, you guys have any other thoughts on this? Should we, should, should we call it a day? All I would say is that as far as self-reporting goes, when you when you first said that, it immediately reminded me of my freshman inquiry class in uh, college, where I had like a weird sort of woo-woo kind of like professor who wore a purple suit every day, and he would assign us readings, and then he would say. So go ahead and grade yourself on how good you did the reading. And (laughs) (laughs) 
We all graded ourselves, and we all gave ourselves 10 out of 10, my man. (laughs) Every That's hilarious, because when I was a teacher, my style was a distant father. And uh, if kids can't, (laughs) they would come up to my desk. Elementary school, third grade, second grade, they'd come up to my desk, and the ones that finished early, they'd show me their work and, like, think I'd be impressed or praise them. And I would just look at them and say, is that your best? (laughs) Gabe. (laughs) Gabe, <laughs> the mind, the minds that you have shaped. <laughs> oh my, dude, you are, you have made. There's no doubt in my mind that you've made minimum 100 sort of like pensive, fireplace, <laughs> pipe smoking children just like wondering, like with a book of Sart, it, it just like is that. It's just like is that my best. <laughs> This is, yeah. this is delightful. This Why don't is delightful you go, to me. go back to your seat and reflect upon that? I'd, and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd like you to tell me what you think your weaknesses are. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, did you ever teach high school students? Uh, not often. It's always yeah. a treat. High school kids have a sense of humor. They're funny. Yeah. I, I just, dude, I, dude, that would be, I'd love to see, like, uh, <laughs> like some. Mr. Pacheco. Very, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Just some some kid coming, some kid coming into class. Like you're gay, Mr. Pacheco, and you're like, <laughs> "Is that your best?" <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, really, 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 really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's your best. And they're just like, "Does that oh, work no, on anyone?" Uh, you thought I'd be. Yeah. You thought I'd be a pleased father, didn't you? When I when you called <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <gay. laughs> and they're just like, "I love you. I love you." <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna call you dad. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, this was so fun. Thank you. I love you guys. Yes. You guys I, be safe. Yeah. Be just remember, just remember, is this is this your best? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody yeah. out there, be better. Be better. Do be your be best. Be better. Be oh. best. Uh, All right. Bye. Get Bye. Out. Bye. All right. Get out of here.